This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. It's not just about the raw materials, it's about the way in which they've been combined and integrated together to make that finished product and all the energy that's gone into that transformation process. And so I think we need smarter recycling technologies that are able to recover more value. But alongside that, we also need to think about how we design the battery in the first place. That was Dr. Gavin Harper, a critical materials expert at the University of Birmingham in the UK, speaking about the challenge of sourcing elements that are essential to the clean transition in a strategic and cost-effective way. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with executives, high-level experts and policymakers brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views, the opinion service of Reuters. I am Lisa Yucca, the European Business Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, and this week I sat down with Dr. Gavin Harper, a research fellow at the University of Birmingham, to discuss how the West is trying to secure access to materials such as lithium, nickel or graphite that are critical to build batteries for electric cars. In this podcast episode, Dr. Harper, who is a member of the Birmingham Centre for Strategic Elements and Critical Materials, explained to me how the West, by offshoring some dirty industries, has de facto allowed China to gain a dominant global position in the processing of many of these materials. Rebalancing this stance requires accepting more mining in Europe and elsewhere. More importantly, the focus should be on boosting the ability to recycle batteries and other goods that contain key elements, but also start designing products in a different way. If you want to know more, listen on. Welcome, Dr. Gavin Harper, to the exchange. It's a real pleasure to uh, have you here today. And, you know, having an expert on uh, critical strategic materials, which is something that uh, um, we are hearing more and more about nowadays. Now, I, I just wanted to start by making a quick comment. Last year, after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, Europe, where uh, I am based, um, I mean, obviously, you know, started to scramble to sort of replace Russian gas. And so energy and energy security was a, a big topic on the agenda. But uh, uh, shortly afterwards, and, and certainly more and more and nowadays, we've also seen um, an increased focus by governments 
and companies on also securing what they consider strategic raw materials or raw materials which are strategic for some key sectors. Can you basically give us a sense of, um, you know, what are, um, you know, some of these uh, core materials that, you know, are, are really attracting the interest of governments and companies and why we should focus on them? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Lisa, for having me on the podcast. Um, I think we're seeing this widespread pivot to decarbonise and to shift to new energy technologies across a whole range of different applications and sectors. And as you observe, that's not just driven by sort of, you know, being green and doing the right thing and decarbonisation. I think, you know, people are increasingly concerned about the vulnerability of hydrocarbon supply chains. I think we've seen some disappointment across um, Europe around new nuclear. Um, so we've seen sort of projects running over budget. We've seen, uh, you know, a little bit of dampening down of excitement over small modular reactors and their cost effectiveness. And so I think increasingly what we're seeing is people driven towards looking at renewables just because it makes sense, you know, on an economic basis. We're seeing the cost of um you know, clean energy technologies fall as we start to achieve real economies of scale. But as you know, the challenge is around the critical materials that are going to power that revolution. I think, you know, it is uh, well known now that uh, um, a lot of these materials which uh, are deemed important for the green transition um, seem to be either concentrated in mining, but particularly in refining in China, which creates, you know, a potential geopolitical issue. Yeah, so I think what you identify there is is one of the key challenges, you know, people to start with a definition for people that might not be aware, you know, critical materials are things that we consider to be really economically important, but at risk of short supply. And I think those supply risks can come in lots of different forms. So as you know, you know, the geography of where these materials are located is important in one respect, but also it's very much around the midstream processing capacity. So the ability to take that raw material that's come from the mine, do something with it to transform it into something useful, um, you know, to then be able to make components out of it. And China's had an awful lot of foresight. You know, there's been a trend over many, many decades whereby, um, you know, Europe and the US has almost tried to pivot towards perhaps deindustrializing some of its dirtier industries, offshoring those. But I think, you know, we've seen lots of challenges. You know, you mentioned the Russia-Ukraine war. We've also seen challenges around, um, you know, COVID and supply chains. And so this narrative of globalisation and the market being able to deliver these materials whenever we want at a cost that's attractive, you know, is under is under challenge now. And I think we're seeing also, you know, resource diplomacy because China realises the monopoly dominant position um, that it's got in the supply of many of these materials. Now, it also wants to build its own industries um, and, and it wants to be able to protect those. And so, you know, that we see all of these talks of, you know, exporting raw materials, potentially um, different barriers, obstacles put in the way because they want to sell finished product and move further and further up the supply chain. But you know, returning to your original point, what sort of materials are we interested in? So we talk about, um, you know, wind turbines, offshore wind turbines. Now, 
if you're going to build a wind turbine offshore, you want to ensure that you've got as little maintenance as possible because it's really awkward trying to service and maintain something that's out at sea. And so for that reason, lots of offshore wind turbines employ what we call permanent magnet generators. So there are different types of generators. Some onshore wind turbines have, you know, just copper coils and a gearbox that converts the slow speed of the wind turbine to the sort of fast rotation of the generator. But in an offshore wind turbine, we tend to use permanent magnets more often. And these employ a class of materials called rare earth materials, particularly things like neodymium in there. And, and the challenge is, is that China by far is the monopoly supplier of this material. I mean, on particularly the rare earth, which we often hear about, I mean, is it fair to say that China controls, you know, 80% or even more, you know, of the yeah. of the supply chain of these particular rare earths? Possibly in excess of that figure. So there is another company called Linus that's based in Australia. Um, they have a mine there. Historically, um, there was some production of rare earths in the United States and there's moves to restart that because obviously they're also concerned around, um, you know, their own critical material supply. But the challenge there isn't just the extraction of the material, it's the process for transforming that material into, um, you know, sort of usable magnetic material. Um, we've lost, you know, lots of elements of capability in Europe around, um, you know, processing magnetic materials. So there's a lot of work on um, trying to sort of rebuild that capacity, but also create new supplies of this material from secondary resources. So it's not just about digging things out the ground. You know, we, we've got this idea of urban mining, you know, what resources already exist above the ground. So, for example, we see lots of computer hard drives that have been discarded. They go to firms to shred them for data recovery. Now, the challenge if you shred a hard drive with a magnet in is that you grind up the magnet, which becomes a fine abrasive that coats all of your recycling equipment and degrades it very quickly. So we can look at instead taking that material, recycling it, putting it into new applications. Um, the thing is with, with rare earth materials and magnets, we use them in, on two sides of the coin for energy sort of transformation. On the one side, there's energy generation, so turning motion into electricity, but we also use them for turning electricity into motion. And we see in electric vehicles, some of the more efficient electric vehicle motors, again, employ these permanent magnets to take the electricity from the batteries, um, turn them into forward momentum. So I think, you know, that's an important class of materials. If we whistle through some of the other different types of materials um, that are sort of at play, if we think about lithium ion batteries in electric vehicles and also in stationary energy storage. So we see this big transition away from internal combustion engine vehicles to you know hybrid and full electric vehicles. Now lithium ion batteries currently are the dominant um, you know sort of technology for powering that revolution. Um, and there are different classes of lithium ion batteries. So we use that term to refer to a whole umbrella of different technologies, but they contain materials like cobalt, nickel, um, the carbon for the anodes is also really important. Things like manganese also, um, you know, less critical, but still something that could be on the horizon. And again, China has really, you know, mastered these supply chains. 
I mean, since you're mentioning the um, electric batteries for cars, I mean, we have seen, well, I think it was less than a month ago, actually, um, China also threatening to ban graphite, which, uh, you know, I understand is also critical um, to make electric batteries. And, and again, it's another material that China, you know, seems to control or dominate to a large extent. Uh, what I wanted to ask you is, uh, given that unfortunately these materials have become now part, you know, of the tit for tat that we're seeing between the United States and China, so the United States are trying to stifle China's on chip making and China retaliating with threatens or even effective bans on certain materials. You know, I'm, I'm just wondering how damaging could that be uh, for the West, for instance, you know, if, if China indeed, you know, stops sending graphite. I mean, they also, uh, I've, I've seen, you know, a massive drop in the gallium and germanium shipments, you know, after China had also, you know, said they would require licenses. So, you know, I'm just wondering, um, you know, how, you know, how quickly could somehow the West, you know, either rebuild the chain or rely on recycling materials, you know, if China continues with these bans? Okay, so I think there are two different things there that apply. One is around primary materials and the other is around secondary or recycled materials. So I think, you know, in terms of primary materials, there are two types of graphite. There's natural graphite and there's synthetic graphite. Um, so with natural graphite, you know, that's really around mine development and building mine capacity. And as you observe, again, you know, this is something where China has been really forward thinking. You know, it's not just any old graphite, it's taking graphite um, of a quality that is suitable for producing lithium ion battery anodes. Um, I think certainly, you know, in the UK context, we have some producers of synthetic graphite in the UK. Um, you know, an interesting little sidebar, um, you know, some years ago, it was found that China were buying lots of this needle coke from the Phillips 66 refinery in the UK. Um, historically, in the UK, that was produced for metallurgical applications. However, obviously, with the decline of heavy industries, they were finding less and less customers um, from that particular application. And they found that actually the Chinese were buying up this synthetic graphite to turn into battery materials. So I think, you know, that's one of the things where there's, there's some capability obviously distributed amongst the West, but what we will see is with all of these sort of threats to those supply chains, you know, more investment, more work going into protecting those assets, but obviously building new industrial facilities is a non-trivial challenge um, and it's ensuring the sort of sustainability and the business case of those facilities, which would require massive capital investment. Um, what we do see, I mean, how will it affect the West? Well, at the moment, you know, most batteries are made in the Far East, China in terms of its capacity for building gigafactories and lithium ion battery production is sort of unsurpassed in the world. They've been really forward thinking and with their very sort of managed industrial policy, they've certainly got an advantage. It's something where the West is trying to play catch up to establish that production capacity rapidly and obviously constraints around materials could potentially stifle those efforts. 
just to continue on this uh, super interesting conversation, I, I was just wondering, um, you know, how do you rate, let's say, the efforts, you know, by various governments to tackle this issue? Because, you know, we have seen the US, you know, starting to give, let's say, tax breaks, you know, to various industry in, in the green um, uh, segment, but also talking about, you know, certain critical supplies. I mean, in Europe, in the European Union, there's the uh, Raw Material Act. Um, I mean, there, there's like various, let's say, action plans or uh, pieces of legislations that have either been approved or are being discussed. I mean, how do you rate these strategies? You know, and the UK obviously has one as well. I mean, you know, are these governments, I mean, in the West tackling the issue in the right way? Yes, I think, you know, there has been a, a phenomenal degree of, you know, investment and incentives around trying to encourage that capacity. Obviously, we start with the disadvantage that we're that far behind in the race to begin with. So there's a lot of catching up. I think when we look at the strengths of the West, um, you know, we're very, very good at generating new knowledge. So there's a fantastic science base across, you know, the United States, Europe and the UK. Um, there are some very strong international collaborations, some of those we're part of, um, you know, around trying to solve these challenges of materials criticality, partly, you know, through trying to engineer new battery chemistries that might come along on the horizon that have, you know, less requirement for some of these critical raw materials but also through, as we said before, looking at the recycling and reuse of lithium-ion batteries to ensure that we get the best use of those materials once they're actually landed on our shores. I think, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating um, and it's very much around seeing how much capacity actually gets built. Um, you know, it's a non-trivial challenge, but at the same time, I think there is an awareness that, you know, the, the sort of centre of gravity around the automotive industry will be very much dependent on where these components come from in the future. You know, we're already starting to see, um, you know, insurgent Chinese brands um, producing electric vehicles, people, you know, like MG, producing some great looking cars. We're starting to see them on the roads in increasing numbers. And, and let's not forget, you know, the automotive industry has been through change and transition before. I think, you know, when we look at um, Japan and building capacity around vehicle production, you know, there was a time where there were few Japanese vehicles on the roads. Um, they were able to work their way up the sort of quality ladder to produce vehicles that were increasingly attractive. You know, and, and, and now Japanese companies are, you know, major player in, um, you know, most world markets. And I think, you know, we are going to see some change with China, but obviously at the same time, there's enormous amounts of jobs that are invested in not only, you know, the production of cars, but also the supply chains that produce the components to supply those vehicles. And so I think, you know, certainly people in the West are aware that they wouldn't want to, to lose those jobs and that capacity. And I think, you know, with things like the Defence Production Act, there's a recognition that some of these capabilities are of strategic national importance, you know, because of security applications, etc. Um, and so I think, you know, it's an ongoing mission, but governments will continue to redouble their efforts to ensure critical material security. 
is absolutely realistically however you know in this catch-up effort you know with china how long can we can it take i mean even if we take in consideration the various elements you know that you have mentioned so you know there needs to be mining capacity industrial capacity and also recycling capacity so a combination um I mean, is this going to be a decade-long, you know, effort? Uh, uh, and the other question is: Is there enough uh, critical material? Or, uh, you know, the, the materials that we're looking for. Do we have them in enough quantities? You know, in in Europe or let's say in countries that you know we consider safe from a strategic and security point of view. Um. I think there are so many different moving parts in that question that it would be absolutely impossible to make any sort of pronouncement. But what I will say, I don't even think it's a, it's a decade long, um, you know, transition or question. I think this is the sort of you know global transition that is going to take place over the next. It's going to define the next century, you know, because I think. You know, talking talk about Schumpeter and waves of innovation. You know, we're seeing this massive wave of innovation mm. and green technology, which is going to you know redefine our socio-technical systems in the world at large. Um, I think it's not going to be something where we can catch up. I think some of us have got to just accept that there is a degree to which you know centers of gravity around the world will change the balance between great power shifts over time. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's a fact of life. It's a feature through human history. But I think you know what we need to do. We need to do our best. And I think that the imperative isn't just about national security and things like that. It's also about thinking around. Uh, sorry, I've just lost the thread of what I was going to say. It's not just about national security. It's not just about individual nations protecting their own interests. You know, we face this international challenge, you know, as a human race, the fact that the climate is changing, um, the ways in which we've been conducting business and living our lives aren't compatible with the world in which we inhabit. And we need everyone to do really well at critical materials. You know, it's not going to be good if just China or just the US or just Europe manages to get a fantastic critical material strategy. We need everyone the world over to have access to these materials and technologies in order to make this clean transition. Absolutely. Um, we haven't mentioned um, copper uh, and obviously copper is used in the transition, the electric transition. And, you know, we know that we will need more and more cables, you know, to build a, in the grid, you know, that is going to be fit for this new vision. I mean, is copper a critical material and are we at risk of shortage and finding ourselves, you know, in a problematic situation? And when I say we, I'm thinking about the West uh, also for copper. Yeah, so I think, you know, copper is certainly a technology metal. Um, the US have recently added copper to their critical raw materials list. I think, you know, historically it was considered important um, but subcritical. But obviously, you know, the changing balance and changing technologies, um, you know, is certainly something that's raised that um, up the sort of priority list. I think, you know, a similar situation arises around nickel. 
you know, for a long time, that was considered a technology metal that was sort of on the watch list, um, but not necessarily considered critical per se. But I think, you know, changes with Russia, Ukraine, etc., heightened awareness around the potential supply chain challenges around nickel. Of course, this is something where it's a subjective decision and it's very much based on each individual country's perspective and strategy. So, you know, what is and what isn't a critical material is something that nations define for themselves based on their own economic circumstances. Yes, and on, on nickel that you mentioned, just reminding, um, you know, our listeners that, you know, Russia is and has been, you know, a big producer of nickel and clearly with the disruption created by the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, I mean, that has uh, created a problem um, uh, for this particular material. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you, just going back to lithium, uh, we have seen in Europe um, a lot of projects for lithium mines, you know, I mean, there's a lot of startups or even, you know, listed companies now that are, you know, smaller mining companies looking at, you know, mining in Europe, something that probably, you know, we would have not expected 10 years ago. Um, um, you know, how problematic would it be to have a lot of mining in Europe, or, you know, uh, from a green perspective, from a sustainability perspective? I mean, this is obviously something that affects communities. It can create wealth for communities, whether that wealth stays within the community or is just extracted out, you know, is, is one of those light motifs that runs through history and, uh, you know, any number of different materials. I think, for example, in the UK, in Cornwall, you see some innovative technologies around um, sort of, you know, brine extraction that potentially are, are less disruptive than some other types of mining. Um, I think, you know, I'm not a mining specialist. I tend to focus more on the circular economy of these materials. So I think it, it's undoubted that it will involve change um, and accommodation. But I think with everything, it's one of those things where we have to weigh up the trade-offs. And if we're prepared for the rest of the world to do all the dirty activities, then, then they're also going to be ones to reap the benefits from, you know, the security that that brings. But I think, you know, we mentioned earlier on in the interview around the circularity of materials, which is probably, you know, more the focus of where my expertise lies. Um, I think we've got some real challenges in the future, in the near future, um, and but these challenges are on different timescales. So to begin with, we've heard lots of media attention on the challenge of, you know, can we develop a recycling industry, first of all, for these materials? And there are lots of startups and lots of people that have come to the market that are introducing technologies. And, and undoubtedly now there is a great deal of capacity that has either been built or is in the process of being built. Now to the challenges. It's about the right capacity at the right time. Hans-Eric Mellon um, and an analyst, well, Hans-Eric Mellon, an analyst from Circular Energy Solutions, um, has done a, a lot of work on this. So forecasting the available scrap um, and comparing that to the sort of demand for raw materials. And he's got a great graph, the elephant in the room, which shows that in terms of the actual material that is returning to recyclers, um, you know, that's a tiny proportion of the actual material that we're going to need. Um, it's also a tiny proportion of the actual recycling capacity 
um, that exist at the moment. So there is far more capacity that's being built than recycled material that comes back. And he uses this Chinese proverb, too many monks and not enough porridge, um, which I think is a great way of sort of capturing the situation. So we've got one thing where there's going to be perhaps a bit of a shakeout in the recycling industry as lots of these new players struggle to get the secondary raw material. Now, that's not the same for all critical materials. If you look at something like recycling rare earths, um, you know, there's a company that's out of the University of Birmingham, Hypermag, that's building the first recycling facility in Europe around rare earth magnetic materials. You know, we see that there are big stockpiles of, um, you know, old hard drives. There are things like um, offshore wind turbines that are going to be decommissioned. So for other materials, there's perhaps, you know, more scrap that's available relative to recycling capacity that exists. But, you know, how expensive is this, you know, to do at the moment? You know, I'm not kind of asking for a dollar figure, but, you know, the economic incentive seems to be skewed towards, you know, getting the primary material rather than doing some of this recycling, which sometimes can be complex because some of the, the metals and the, you know, materials are kind of glued together and uh, maybe or even, you know, in very, very small quantities, you know, in certain, uh, I don't know, in the iPhones, you know, in certain uh, objects that we use uh, on a daily basis. While copper that we mentioned before, you know, I was talking to a copper producer, they they are able to use a lot of scraps because, you know, that seems to be around, you know, in, in bigger sizes and they can pick that up. So let's unpick that because there's an awful lot of questions within that. Um, and, and let's try and sort of categorise those separately. So I think in terms of the environment, there's certainly a legal and regulatory push towards incentivising and encouraging recycling. We've done an article for the journal Science looking at um, you know, the European battery regulations and changes there. Um, there's sort of targets on future recycled content in batteries produced in Europe. That's going to drive recycling. We see things like producer responsibility. Um, I think there are challenges in legislation and the regulatory environment. So quite often, um, you know, targets for recycling can be quite crude. Um, they can be, you know, mass based. And as you say, if you've got elements that are very finely dispersed, like critical materials, that doesn't always, um, you know, get captured well within a, a mass based target because they tend to be the small fraction of materials that are too difficult to recover. Um, and we see sort of moves from sort of EPR towards IPR in the future and other things that may drive the industry in that direction. I think one of the challenges is that we very much look at recycling as an end of pipe solution. So we make things how we want to make them, we use them. Oh no, we've got some waste. What do we do with the waste? Oh, we need to recycle it. And that's the point at which we start looking at how to do the recycling. As you observe, technically that creates us lots of challenges because we've designed things that aren't, you know, meant to work in a circular economy. And um, we need to think about eco-design more. How can we actually design products that are designed to be serviceable? 
to be taken apart, to be easy to repair. And we see things like the right to repair legislation. Um, we also see an increasing push by manufacturers to start to address some of the shortcomings around different designs. I mean, I think, again, you know, look to China and what China are doing. We see things like the BYD cell to pack concept um, being something that looks to be you know, very serviceable, very recyclable compared to some older electric vehicle battery designs where you've got lots of cells that are just, you know, glued together and there's a load of adhesive that's hard to deal with. I think what I need to also do to contextualise this is explain why that's really important. Because if you look at the recycling processes that are being used, um, you know, we've got some very crude techniques like pyrometallurgy where you take a whole bunch of batteries, you put them into a furnace and, you know, some of the metals end up in a slag and some of them you're able to then take out and refine. The challenge with that is it's very good at taking things back to raw materials. But what we need to do is think about the value in those batteries. How can we most effectively recover it? And it's not just about getting materials out. It's also about the energy and the time that's been invested into making those really high quality battery materials. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there are approaches like direct recycling, where potentially we could take an older battery, we could remove the material and then look at what we need to do to regenerate that material to put it into a new battery. So it's not just about the raw materials, it's about the way in which they've been combined and integrated together to make that finished product and all the energy that's gone into that transformation process. And so I think we need smarter recycling technologies that are able to recover more value. But alongside that, we also need to think about how we design the battery in the first place. That's great, uh, Gavin. I mean, this is actually lots of uh, very interesting ideas, you know, and uh, obviously information that you've shared with us today. Um, obviously, there's still a lot of thinking that uh, will go into uh, this topic, you know, and I'd like to stay in touch with you uh, on this, you know, and, and related issues in the future. So thank you very much again for joining uh, the exchange today. Thank you very much for inviting me on to the exchange. I hope it's been an interesting conversation for your listeners. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shun in Hong Kong. Subscribe to the exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with more of our views at breakingviews.com and on the X social media site, where our handle is at Breaking Views. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. 
Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.